we're going to begin here with our bullies again. These guys are just not going away. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ona. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come. Come down. Why should I stop while I leave? Why should I why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Okay, this is like a snare of false friendship. The wall is almost finished. Nothing that these three and their following have done has worked to delay um, or put a stop to Nehemiah and his calling. Um, there's still some gaps. I mean, the gaps have been closed, it says, but there's still the doors need to be hung. Um, very important last part that needs to be done because there's still an entrance way into the city, which means intruders can enter. Remember, there's nine gates, so nine, nine ways to get into the city. So the city is still in a little bit of harm's way. Um, so these shady characters, they're kind of catching Nehemiah at a tender time um, in, the, in the project. He's probably, if you can imagine, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually drained. Remember, they haven't slept. They're um, building with um, their swords and their weapons next to them, um, strapped to their, um, to their sides. But scripture tells us that Nehemiah sees right through this. And in verse 3, he asks them a question. He sends a question back to them and says, Why should I stop working and come down to see you? And I kind of thought about this. I kind of stayed on this while I was preparing this lesson um, a while ago. I, I stayed on this for a little bit, and I thought, distractions, okay? Even the good distractions, distractions that are harmless, um, that aren't sin, they still cause us to lose our focus. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we're not allowed to take a break from life and, you know, enjoy a good pedicure or, you know, something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that, you know, we cannot ever take a break from being obedient to God. Okay. So let's just throw it out there. I just have a question for you. What distracts you? Good or bad? What distracts you? Your family. Your family? Yeah. Family issues? Good and bad? Worries. Worry. We can chase our tail like any dog pretty quickly. Phone calls. Phone calls. Yes. Especially the, the ones where they, they're the scam ones. The potential <laughs> spam. <laughs> yeah. crazy. Absolutely. Probably one of the biggest um, distractions for me is my iPad or my phone um, technology. I have this little thing on my iPad, which I wish, and if somebody knows how to do this, I am begging you to do it. Um, disable where it pops up just random times during the week and tells me how much screen time I've used. <laughs> and it's really convicting because my kind of 
guilty pleasure is you know watching a good Netflix series. <clears throat> but it they you know it adds up, and I'll I'll look at that, and it'll say like you know two hours or three hours or sometimes more, um, and uh, I'm just like that's time wasted. I mean I will never get that time back, never. Um, and it's, you know, but then a good technology is good. I FaceTime my grandkids every day and that, that's awesome. But, you know, life can just, even the noise of life and daily things that we need to do can be a distraction. And Nehemiah was the master um, example of keeping us focused. So verse 4 tells us that four times they tried to distract Nehemiah. But Nehemiah was discerning. And let's read verses 5 through 9 and see how that discernment works out for him. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. So again, this Sambalot pulls Geshem, in, Geshem into it and throws him under the bus as well. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them in your own mind. He's calling them liars. For all you have, for they all wanted, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But Nehemiah, what does he do? We know he's a man of prayer. He says, "But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands." Okay. So the fifth time, the four four times they tried to torment him and lure him to this um, city outside of Jerusalem. The fifth time, they try a little different, different tactic, and they accuse him of going to rebel against the king and wanting to be king himself. And we kind of know enough about Nehemiah now that um, if you want to get a visual, I can see him, you know, kind of a, a smaller man. He gets red in the face, his heart starts racing, and he's furious over the lies. And he just has no tolerance for anybody who is trying to waste his time and lure him away from what he knows God has intended for him to do. He's worked hard. He's trusted God. He's actually given several personal sacrifices um, to show that he is not in this for himself. Okay, He is in it for the people. He is in it to bring glory to God and restore the people's um, sight um, in the face of all the pagan nations that are surrounding them. He has had the king's blessing. Um, he doesn't want to be king. Nehemiah doesn't want to waste his time with the lies, and he calls him out. He said, you're making all of this up. None of this is true. You can't bully us, and I love, again, how he includes not just himself, but he includes them because they're a group, they're a community. Um, you're trying to scare us, but this isn't going to work. And I kind of thought about this, too, and I kind of internalized this for a while. Think about this. No one can make us afraid. They can try to make us choose fear, but it's our choice to be afraid. No one can choose fear for us. You know, people can try to get us to fear what other people are saying about us, because we want everyone to like us. I can bet if we took a poll in here um, in a group with this group of women, 
we're probably pretty much all people pleasers. We want people to like us. We want to do what we can for people. You know, we just think that's how the world kind of goes. Um, so Nehemiah states the truth, though, and he says, he states the truth and says, you're lying. He confronts and calls the spade a spade, and he said, um, we see what you're doing, but God, strengthen our hands. Let us continue this work. And it's a cry for help. No one knows who to, to ask for help, and he goes to the true source of um, the power. He, to accomplish anything and to discern truth, he knows that it's all come from God. So let's continue with verses 10 through 14. Now when I went into the house of Shema, the son of Deliah, son of Mahertabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, this is Nehemiah, should I, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the house, of the, the, into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so that they would give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So again, he says a little prayer inside of these four verses. This is what I love about the Old Testament. It's the drama. If you can kind of like, if you can kind of put yourself back in it, you know, my husband John is um, a James Bond fanatic. <laughs> And I confess he's dragged me to every James Bond movie that has ever been made. And um, it's so many, in fact, that I even have my favorite James Bonds. Um, Sean Connery, all-time favorite. Um, the most handsome is Pierce Bronson. I mean, he's just very dreamy. Um, but even though I've sat through all these James Bond movies, a lot of the storylines I don't understand. He's got to explain, you know, the bad guys to me and this and that, you know. And a lot of them I end up falling asleep through. But, you know, there is a, a point in each one of these James Bond movies where there's some tension that just grips you. And there's, it's, it's very action-packed. And this is a James Bond moment for Nehemiah. Because this is the moment where Nehemiah sees that there is a secret informer in the house, okay? So this guy who I butcher his name, but met Herbal, Herbal, whatever, however you pronounce his name. He is a, he is, he is a Jewish man and he has been hired by our villains. Okay. He's been hired by our villains. He's confined to his house, it says. Now, it doesn't tell us why he's confined to his house. It could have been for health reasons. Um, that's what most of the commentaries um, have, have stated. But he was a priest, more than likely, who was kind of gone rogue. Um, and because he was telling Nehemiah that, you know, you can come into the temple, I can get you into the temple, we'll close the doors, you'll be safe, it was, it's pretty much um, presumed that he was a priest. 
So a priest that has turned for the other side. Um, now, he figures that he can tempt Nehemiah into the temple, and he says, they're coming for you. They're going to kill you tonight. They're coming for you. Um, I have the perfect place for you to hide. I'm going to hide you in the house of God. They won't be able to get you there. They're not allowed in. Nehemiah, I love how he is. He, he doesn't let his emotions run away from, from him. When someone or something is threatening you, you know, you go into this high alert mode and your adrenaline starts going and you know, I just got to be safe at whatever the cost. I just got to be safe. You know, I know God said not to do this, but, you know, maybe I'm the exception because, you know, I'm, I'm in this predicament and he knows I'm in this predicament. But Nehemiah doesn't go there. Instead, he says, I'm not a priest. I have no right to enter the temple. This is not going to go well for me. God won't allow anyone to enter the temple that is not a, a priest. Now, there's an altar of asylum, like in the temple courtyards, where people could go if they were in trouble. Um, but Nehemiah, even though he's done all his work and the builder building management for the wall, he is forbidden to enter the temple. So why would this priest gone rogue, why would he do this? Well, he was hired by Sambalot and Tobiah. And if he could lure Nehemiah into the temple, they'd be able to discredit him and all the work on the wall would be in vain, okay? Because God would not tolerate it. So I was thinking about this and you know, the best lies come as close to the truth as possible. The enemy can come clothed in lies that look very appealing. And for a brief moment, they make a lot of sense. They're designed to give us no time to think clearly. And the purpose is to get us off the right track. Again, we'll go back to Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 12 said, There is a way which seems right unto man, but the end therein is death. So discernment, Nehemiah has it. Nehemiah doesn't have time. With discernment, you don't have time to hold grudges or resentments. He doesn't try to take control and talk sense into them. He knows that they're out of control. Instead, he just states the simple truths that he knows about himself. Should I enter the temple to save my own life? He knows if he disobeys and enters the temple, God will not let that pass. He knows that even though he's been called of God, he's not someone extra special that can get away with something that other people cannot. And so he goes to the source of all of his power and his strength. And he says, remember, O oh God, the evil that these men have done. It wasn't a Nehemiah-centered prayer. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago in some lessons. Um, it was a God-centered prayer. Nehemiah knew that he was chosen by God for the purpose of organizing and rebuilding. Um, he knew who to give the credit to. He wasn't going to take the credit for himself. He cried out to God because of their evilness. Let me just say, anyone who is asking you to do something contrary to what God has called you to do, it's evil. It's sin. They're going to pull you into sin. They're not going to be held responsible for what you do. You are. So own that. And then he even mentions this prophetess, Nodiah, um, and what she had tried to do. Who is this woman? Because it says prophetess, so she is a woman. She's only mentioned here. Um, I couldn't find a lot about her, um, but what I did find, and it made the most sense, was 
she's a, probably a spokeswoman for the pagan women who have been taken as wives by the Jewish men. Remember, they've lived in exile for so long. They were marrying other cultures. Um, they were taking these women. And the Jewish men had such a, um, a thumb on the women. The women were you know, not really allowed to do anything. Um, so this, this woman may have taken um, her calling to be that she was a spokeswoman for these, these women and how to integrate them into the Jewish culture. Whoever she was, she had a voice, she had influence over some of the Israelite people, and Nehemiah found it important enough to record her name for all prosperity um, in, the, in the word of God. So, um, couldn't find a lot about her, but Nehemiah thought she was important enough to mention. So, let's read verses 15 and 16. The wall is finished. So, the wall is finished on the 25th day of the month, Elu, in 52 days. And I love how that's such an extraordinary task, and he just kind of just says it. He doesn't make a lot of fanfare about it. It's just, that's the facts. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Okay? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So the, the wall has laid in ruins for over 100 years, and in 52 days, the rubble's been moved out, the wall has been replaced, the doors have been hung. So why did it take so long to repair the walls? Well, obviously in hindsight, we have hindsight, so we kind of have a little, a little bit of, um, of take on it. The walls were a shaming factor for the Israelite nation. Remember, we mentioned when Jewish, the walls were broken, it meant the people were broken. And it, God was raising up a man who was able to complete this work the way God wanted it to be done. So that's why it took so long. Who was Nehemiah? Well, he was a man who grieved. He grieved greatly. He prayed. Nehemiah was a planner. Nehemiah asked the king boldly. He was bold for what he needed. He was an encourager to the people. He was able to lead the people. He stood strong in the face of the enemies where the people were able to see that. Where the people saw devastation and this big impossible job, Noah saw that all things with God were possible. And so he was the man. And it took God um, to, to be in the background of Nehemiah's life in order to put him where he wanted him at the right time. And I was thinking about that, and I was like, sometimes we do the same. I think I fall more on the side of the Israelites than I do on Nehemiah. Um, we love our families. Um, we love them to feel secure and safe. But sometimes circumstances come into our lives that are just so overwhelming and so confusing and we see a mess rather than an opportunity or a possibility we're afraid of change we face opposition and unlike nehemiah who was able to confront and call out the truth we kind of lose our courage or at least i do i shouldn't speak for you all um, we settle for what we know rather than the abundant blessings that god has in store for us and we're full of excuses as to why we can't start rebuilding something. And whether that be our personal relationship with Christ, 
How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I'm going to start going back to church and I'm going to be involved in church when I get my, you know, life kind of straightened around? Well, that's what church is for. Um, you know, how many times do we say, you know, I'm going to, I got to start building, you know, my, or not building, but um, my relationship with my husband's a little broken or my relationship with my family. Um, we don't, we don't sometimes dive in and say, you know, I need to rebuild my commitment to the church. You know, this is your family outside of your, you know, family. This is your church family. Um, rebuild relationships with family, with friends. Tell your neighbors about Christ. You know, where do we begin? And again, Nehemiah is a perfect example of where we begin. He, well, he not only grieved, he ached. He ached for the sinfulness of himself. He saw himself as a sinful man. But he saw the nation as a whole as sinful. He prayed. He prayed twice as long on the building project than it took to complete. So think about that. What does that tell us? It tells us that the spiritual battle is twice as, twice as prevalent, twice as demanding as the actual, uh, actual plan that God has for us to do, to put together. He stands up to his enemies. He's not afraid to confront with truth. You can confront in a very foolish way, but, you can, but confronting in truth is not foolish. He refused to let anything come between him and the call that God had on his life. And all of these things showed, in these verses it said, all of these things showed his enemy, not how big Nehemiah was or how impressive Nehemiah was, but it showed how big Nehemiah's God was and how dependent upon his God Nehemiah was, and he was gonna obey him. The surrounding nations were afraid because, and they lost self-esteem in themselves. They lost that kind of bragging, threatening um, edge because they could see that it was evident that God was behind this building project. Have you ever noticed that when something has God's fingerprints all over it, that everyone takes notice, even the enemies? Um, you know, have you ever gone through like maybe a traumatic or maybe not such so traumatic, but a time in your life when somebody has come up to you and said, how did you get through that? I couldn't, I, I'm so glad I don't have your life. Or, you know, how, how did you, how did you do this? And it's just such a segue to say, you know, my faith, you know, this is my faith. You know, I, I do believe that God allows us to walk through things that are very difficult. But when you think of it, it's also a witness. People are watching us. People are watching us. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to do it perfectly. But we can be vulnerable and we can say, look, I don't have the answers, but I know my God does. I love how Patty always says, you know, she, she hears God say, you know, when she's going through a rough time, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me or not? You know, so we just need to trust the process because people are watching us. So we're being a witness, even through the bad, even through the hard times. So the people of Jerusalem were a witness to these other nations. God had allowed them to prevail, and it was only by his grace that they were able to rebuild, and there was nobody, you know, God allowed their eyes and hearts to be open. There was nobody that could deny that fact. So let's finish off chapter six here with verses 17 through 19. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah 
and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because of the son-in-law of Shech... I'm not going to say that right. Shechaniah and the son of Ara and his son, Jeroboam, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Baraka, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Okay, so there are some within the gates of the city who are friends and fraternizing with the enemy. Tobiah is this loudmouth bully who's not afraid to voice his, opin um, his opposition um, of Nehemiah. But there's many people, including some of the nobles, who in fact have strong family ties to Tobiah. These nobles have even spoken highly of Tobiah to Nehemiah. I, I can't imagine. If they were blinded to the sight of how difficult he was making life for um, Nehemiah or if they were just in denial. But they were also bragging um, about how good Tobiah was to them and they were telling Tobiah all the things that Nehemiah was saying about him. So there is this intense betrayal going on within the people um, within the city. It's most likely, the commentaries say, that the nobles had business dealings with Tobiah and they wanted to protect their financial um, investments. These dealings would have been binding agreements within the Jewish community, most likely facilitated by uh, Jewish marriages. As we see, his son, in fact, is, born, is married to a Jewish woman. So Tobiah has wormed his way into um, this culture and nation and he's, he's got quite a few of them fooled, okay? And it's, it's, a, it's a financial gain for him. But again, Nehemiah, in his discernment, he sees the truth. Tobiah once again sends letters to Nehemiah to scare him in verse 19. Nehemiah doesn't address this. He's not going to talk about this on a go-forward basis. He knows he can't change um, the minds of his enemies, he knows that the enemy has fooled and um, deceived some of um, his own people, but he's going to leave it to God and he's going to let it go. And that was another tall tale lesson for me. You know, I want to defend myself when people say something wrong against me or something I don't like. And you know, you can't, you can't, you can't talk logically to someone who's being foolish. You just can't. Don't waste your breath. Don't waste your time. Just give it to God. Um, we haven't seen the end of Tobiah. We're going to see him again in chapter 13. But Nehemiah kind of puts this um, to rest for us for um, a few chapters. So we're going to move into chapter 7. Again, chapter 7 is a tough read. Verses 5 through 73 is a list of the exiles have, who have returned home from Babylonia. Um, it's actually a copy of Ezra 2. Ezra 2 is also a list of those that have returned, um, and they're pretty much um, an identical list. But I just want to go through the first couple, couple verses here. So let's read 1 and 2. And when the wall had been built, and I set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanai and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. 
So everything is in order here. It, both practically, the city is secure, the doors have been hung, and spiritually. And we know this because the Levites have been appointed. The Levites were the worship leaders, they were the singers, um, probably positioned at each of the different gates. Um, so the city would have been very joyous, um, as we're gonna see um, in chapter eight next week. The walls are built, the people could worship with greater freedom. Um, so that they could give God the glory. So Nehemiah was teaching the people that with each victory God is behind, there needs to be a deeper sense of praise. Okay, so it, it, goes, it goes deep. Nehemiah was not a political figure, so he gave his authority to his brother and this military leader, and they were put in charge of the city. They were God-fearing men, um, scripture tells us, that were equipped to rule better than Nehemiah, um, which is another lesson for us in leadership. Knowing when it's time to give up your position and step aside to let someone else take over, okay? It's knowing your strengths and weaknesses and being able to delegate. So oftentimes us as moms, you know, um, I'm gonna tattle on my mom here for a second, but you know, <laughs> us girls, us girls were required to make our beds every morning. We didn't do it good enough, so my mom would redo it. And so finally, we just like would throw the covers over and be like, oh, she's going to redo it anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's just like, you know, but Nehemiah, he, he understands that, you know, if he's given somebody a task to do, he's going to let them do it. Okay? Sometimes us as moms, you know, we, we tell our kids to do something, but we know we could do it better and quicker and faster, so we just go ahead and do it. We're not teaching anybody anything by doing it that way. But that's how God made us. Uh, let's go on to verse 3. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, some in front of their own homes. So this is what... This is when new management is kind of taking over the city. This is what Nehemiah is telling them to do. So he sets a watch over the city. The walls alone were not going to be enough to protect the people. They needed watchmen in place. Therefore, those watchtowers that were placed, those three watchtowers that were around the gates, they were going to have guards positioned there. Um, the, guards were only going to, the gates were only going to be able to be open for a limited time each day. It was still a time for Jerusalem to be on high alert. And so he wants to stand guards at the guard posts. He wants to stand guards um, in front of some of their own homes. Because remember, the enemy had already found a way into um, Jerusalem within their own walls. Um, that priest gone rogue. Um, you know, the enemies were infiltrating and, um, you know, buying off the people um, to be spies. So verses 4 and 5. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I, and I found written in it. Okay, so these are the names. These are the names. Um, God has put it on Nehemiah's heart to grow the city. There's going to be a whole chapter on how he, how he does grow the city and, and repopulates the city. But first of all, he needs to know who is there. 
So this chapter seven, like I said, we're not gonna read it, but we're gonna go through it a little bit, and there's, there's actually some really cool things that we're gonna learn from chapter seven. Um, there's five things in chapter seven that Nehemiah is telling us that matter to God. And if you're following on your outline, um, the first is worship matters to God, okay? Nehemiah, in mentioning the Levites, the Levites were um, the, 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 they were the song leaders, they were the worship leaders, and he was placing them strategically around the city and regularly at the gates. So there was a lot of praise and worship going on within the city. The people were safe and secure. Their faith was now being restored because everything that had been prophesied of old was now coming to fruition in their lifetime. Um, so that's a really cool thing. They had completed an amazing task in record time, and they were beginning to see that it was only because of their dependence upon God. So worship matters to God. Godly character matters to God, number two. Nehemiah had to delegate. He couldn't do it all. He realized his brother and this military leader were better equipped for manning the city and being in charge of um, security. So I kind of researched these two men with the commentaries and the scholars, and it was really interesting. They said that, that Nehemiah would have chosen men who um, had hearts for God, and who were um, sold out for the cause, and men who probably had a lot of the same characteristics that Nehemiah had. So those characteristics are, under number two, they were faithful, okay? He actually says they were more faithful and God-fearing men than many, and that is verse two. They were dependable, meaning they would be willing to speak the truth, they could be counted on to see the job through, the second thing is they were in awe of God, okay? A fear or awe of God grows out of a knowledge of God, okay? When we understand our sinfulness and that we deserve death, but instead are given forgiveness and eternal life, um, that's knowledge. It's understanding grace. It's understanding that our sin is covered, but it's not a free pass to allow us to continue to sin. It's seeing God's might and power in the way he provides for us and his steadfast love. And then it's knowing, like Peggy just brought out in Psalm 139, when we sit, when we stand, what we think before we think it, what we say before we say it. It's about wanting to please God in everything that we do. That is living in the fear and awe of God. And the third characteristic that they would have possessed for Nehemiah to place them in the positions that he did is that they were watchful, okay? These were the men that had helped guide and leaders that had built the wall with their blood, sweat, and tears. They stood watch as the enemy threatened them physically with death um, and their taunts. They were alert, men that were alert. They trusted God, but knew that they also had to act. So they were, they were the men who took the charge in our last chapter, where they're working on the wall with one hand and have their, their swords and their weapons um, attached um, to their sides. What else matters to God? Well, the third thing is people matter to God. We have verses 6 through 73, which is a list of genealogy. 
Historically, and from a salvation perspective, these lists are very important. It's important for these people to be able to trace the line of Judah because the line of Judah is where the Messiah is going to eventually come from. About four to five hundred years later, Jesus will be born through the line of Judah. This is only about two percent of the Jewish population that was carried away into exile. So these are the ones that Nehemiah wants to give um, credit to who had had the opportunity to rebuild the city that God has decided to attach his name to. So Nehemiah mentions them by name to show that God knows them by name. Interestingly enough, in verses 8 through 25, the word family is mentioned 18 times. Okay. God designed the family as a unit to love and to serve him. And the families were being attacked on every level we saw in the last lesson. Just as our families today are being attacked on every level. What can we do? We can pray for each family member by name every day. We can pray for those in our families who don't know Christ to come to Christ. You know, you're their legacy. Um, that's for another lesson. But pray for your church family. You know, if you don't have, if you don't have a large family, um, pray for your church family. Pray for your church family even if you have a large family. Um, <laughs> this list was important to establish family lines. Um, it, it, there were men um, in scripture who were claiming to be of the royal priesthood. And again, it was so important because they could not enter the temple unless they had that royal priesthood blood. So this, this genealogy um, proved if they were or were not um, able to um, pick up their priestly duties. Remember, they had been in exile for so long, 70-some years, um, 100 years. They just needed to regroup. Their families had been dispersed. Um, you know, their, their family genealogies had been dispersed. They just needed to come together and recollect themselves. The fourth, thing, the fourth thing that matters to God is your place in God's family matters to you. Um, ancestry is so much fun, and it's important because it's where we come from. You know, we all like to say, you know, I'm a little Jewish, or I'm a little Amy. Um, I'm a little Irish, I'm a German, you know, whatever you are. And um, I remember um, doing the uh, Ancestry.com thing, and um, <laughs> it was interesting because um, we had given it to my parents for um, a Christmas gift, and my dad did it right away because, you know, he was bound to determine he was like, 40 or 50 percent German comes to find out he's 40 or 50 percent Irish there's no German blood in his blood. so he's as stubborn as an Irishman not as a German um, but it was interesting because I did it afterwards and I pulled up my thing and it says I felt like I was in like a Star Wars movie it says David Shoup is your father and I was like thank goodness my my that, that was awesome, you know, I mean, <laughs> didn't say anything about my mom, but, you know, David Shoup is your father. I'm like, okay, that could get some people in a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, but our ancestry is fun, and um, I love looking through old pictures. My grandmother, my mom's mom, left us tons of black and white pictures, and we, just a few months ago, spent time with my kids and my parents, and we looked through all these old pictures. And there's like four or five generations back, and I mean, it's just incredible. And some, some of them my grandmother has written names on, and so we can kind of figure out some we just kind of guess. But it's really humbling to look at these pictures. And when you do, like, 
this is where you came from. These are your people. And, you know, it's like, it's really humbling because when you look at them and you're like, if one of these people had made a different choice in life, a different spouse or moved somewhere else, we wouldn't be here. And that's just, it's kind of like mind boggling to me. But our spiritual lineage is even more interesting. And these names listed here in Nehemiah 7 are also part of our spiritual lineage. You know, whether we're Jewish or not, we're adopted into the Jewish faith. Christ came from the line of Judah. And it's important to remember that God has placed us in this time in history for a specific purpose. Okay? So we are part of this family, your family, your nuclear family, you're part of this church family for a purpose. And the last thing that is important to, that matters to God is our commitment and understanding of God's purpose for us, for what he's called us to be. This people in this list have returned from Babylonia and Jerusalem. They each went to their own cities. Remember, not many of them came into the city of Jerusalem, per se. They were born in exile. They had established themselves. They lived in a pretty metropolitan area for the times um, that that was. They had homes. They had families. They had friends. They had careers. They had extracurricular things they were involved with. Their homeland was some 800 miles away that they had never stepped foot in. It was not an easy move. Um, as we talked about, it was a move that they had to do on foot. Anything that they needed to take with them had to be carried, um, so they left a lot of things behind. But they were a people that were committed because they knew God's promise to Abraham was that they were to possess the land that God had given them. They needed to return. They needed to restore the city. They needed to restore um, their heritage and their faith and their culture. And so this travel home was a way that Nehemiah could um, honor them because he was impressed. And it was kind of like a, a prosperity thing for future generations for their name um, to be recorded. And again, if you want to compare that this list to Ezra, it's found in Ezra 2, um, 1 through 70. Pretty much identical, the same list. So just a recap, and we're almost done here. Discernment is about learning how to know what matters to God and then doing those things no matter what. Worship matters to God, like we said. We need to praise him. I just had a, a good friend who, um, who passed away just um, within the last month, and every time we ended a phone call, you know, she, she taught me to say, you know, God is good. All the time, God is good. And um, we, we've gone through a lot of stuff together. But, so God needs to be praised all the time, because all the time, God is good. A godly character matters. It's not just knowing who you are, but remember, we talked about whose we are. You know, ladies, we are daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need to act royally. We need to act royally. Sometimes we act like a royal pain, but sometimes we need to act royally. We're princesses. We're princesses. Absolutely. People matter. We need to pray for people's salvation. When you think about that, it's humbling. Somebody prayed for yours. Maybe it was a grandmother. Maybe it was a mother. Maybe it was a grandfather. Maybe your spouse. You need to pray for people's salvation. Our families matter to God. We need to love them well. We need to cherish them. I know 
you have the good, the bad, and the ugly in your family, if your family is anything like mine. Um, but we need, to, we need to love them well. We need to cherish them. And that needs to continue into the church family. You know, we need to love each other in this room well. We need to cherish each other. Um, it's very important. Finding our purpose matters to him. It's what our calling is. Um, and we need to do it with obedience. We need to, to obey loudly, so to speak. You know, we need to, we need to, be, to be loud for, 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 for God. And lastly, I just want to ask you, um, are you feeling insignificant today? Because, I mean, there are some days when I wake up and I just want to put the covers back over my head and be like, I don't matter to anybody. Nothing I'm going to do today is really that important that I can't do tomorrow. If you're feeling like that or when you feel like that, because I guarantee sometimes we do, let's look at verse 66. And I'm just going to read this, 66 and 67. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Okay, so their assembly together. Okay, so there were servants there were singers, a total of, I added this up on my calculator, 49,942. Why wouldn't Noah, or Noah, why wouldn't Nehemiah have just rounded up to 50,000? Because each and every number, each and every number signified a person, and that person had significance. They were no less or no more. So I love that scripture tells us 49,942. Everybody counted. Even the donkeys. Even the donkeys. So let's close in prayer, and then we have some time for, um, for group time. Dear Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful for Nehemiah and the lessons that he's able to teach us, Lord. And thank you that we are significant in your sight, Lord. Thank you that... We know that we matter to you, Lord, that we are um, daughters of the King. Help us to act like it, Lord. Just give us hearts to be able to have discernment, Lord, to have common sense, to be able to assess situations and speak boldly the truth without being offensive. But Lord, just give us mostly the desire just to see you more clearly, to focus on you, and, and to just love and serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.